Mark and Anshu met each other in middle school. Became friends because we both like doing like word searches for like languages and capitals, right? Yeah, well, actually, yeah, that actually that is definitely. So that early. Actually, yeah, yeah, actually, we actually were like, oh my god, we love geography. <laughs> that, <laughs> like, is, was... that is 100% true. Oh my god. <laughs> they hung out, they stopped hanging out, hung out again. But in high school Chinese class, they sealed a deal that hasn't been broken since. Yeah, no, we had Chinese together our senior year of high school. It was a friendship made on language, specifically gossip. The draw of speaking Chinese was definitely because we could talk. <laughs> now that we can't do that, I really don't keep the language yeah. up as much. And but. that's actually a thing. Anju's like, everyone understands us now. You need to learn Hindi so you yeah. can speak with me. There is, and there was. That's like one example. I don't know. It's um, we've kind of abbreviated Chinese into our own little monstrous little hybrid language. Yeah, talk about what you had for dinner, or just like go on that that kind of trip. I mean, we went to. Well, I was like hella, you know, I shwaged for a little bit, about like an hour, and I woke up and I was yeah. mad. Uh, so I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll just like Dadinhua, you know, Mark, and yeah. like oh, and well, I texted him. But I was like, OMG, I'm mad, uh, what do you want to chef? <laughs> and then he was like, I'm on the, he was working on this group yeah, project. Yeah, it was the two shukan, Shane Somdongka. And then we went to Waki and we did you know. some Thai. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was a decent night. Yeah. It was pretty hawan. <laughs> and it's not always just Chinese. If you go into bed, you say gute Schwage, and that's German. Gute, good, Nacht, night. In Chinese. Shui, both. Uh, characters in the fourth tone, which means to sleep. You don't know something. Instead of saying je ne sais pas, you say je ne sais pas. We know that you know what to say when you don't know. Use Chinese as slang and not just like English slang because it makes it unique and it just yeah. creates a special bond. Because the only true, person yeah. I can talk to like that is Mark, you know. Welcome to American Student Radio. I'm Stephen Johnson, and today's show is about language. It's what scientists say makes us special, our weirdest invention, and most powerful tool. The New York Times writer Verlin Klinkenborg says, words have complex histories. They resonate with the ghosts of all their earlier forms. In these histories, connotations and perspectives differ in every language. In the next hour, you'll hear people use those languages to tell their stories about poetry, identity, and friendship. Thanks for listening. From Bloom... <laughs> From... Uh, hang on, live... What is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is. This is. This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens, conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. When I showed up to IU freshman year, my dorm floor felt like linguistic paradise. Among about 50 people, I heard Czech, Macedonian, Lithuanian, Hindi, Chinese, Korean, plus all the standards everybody learns. And in that group were two friends from Chicago, Mark. I lived about 20 minutes from Edinburgh in Scotland where I, for like most of my life, until I was about 12, 13. And Anshu. Um, well, English, um, Gujarati, Hindi, um, Chinese, obviously, and then French. And then I've taken German, but I forgot most of it. Anshu's parents immigrated to the U.S. from Gujarat, a state in western India. So he grew up in the American Midwest with Gujarati, Hindi, and English. The language I go to subconsciously would be Gujarati, um, just because it's the first language I ever learned. But that being said, it's not the language I speak the best. Because, I mean, growing up, my whole education has been in English. 
and like I mean our family friend gatherings everyone spoke Hindi and I was exposed to a wider vocabulary in Hindi and that's why I know a lot of more words than I do in Gujarati. Native bilinguals and language learners often say each language can serve different purposes. And so I mean I had I dream in like English and like maybe like Hindi, Gujarati are the, obviously the main three but I have had dreams in Chinese. None in French yet but we'll <laughs> yeah. see. Maybe I'll get there. This might be a stupid question. Does one feel more natural to sing? Actually, yeah. That's definitely a thing. Um, I would say Hindi, just because, I mean, like, growing up, like, that's the only kind of music I really listen to. I feel like I have a different singing voice in English than I do in Hindi. As for Mark, he says he didn't really think of his Scottish accent consciously when he first got here. But it's a little complicated. My first friends that I made when I got here, well, one of them was English, and then the other was American. So I was around another British person, but I chose to kind of adopt this kind of fake American accent anyway. Um, and I think that might have just been me in terms of like what my personality is like and kind of less the situation that I was in. And he code switches when he talks to his family, Scottish with them, American with his friends here, flipping back and forth in seconds. Yeah, it's completely unconscious. Like there's no, there's no way I would ever talk to my family like this, not in a million years. It's just, it's become normal for me to talk to people like you like this, you know? Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's a strange, it's a strange little situation I'm in. I don't really know some sort of subconscious part of me that somehow must feel like shame for feeling like foreign and weird, but um, not something conscious that I do. No, probably the Scottish accent is the one that I think in. It's the one that I would unconsciously go to. Um, my American accent doesn't feel like fake. It's become part of my identity in some ways, but it's not like if I were to go anywhere else in the world that wasn't the UK or the US, I wouldn't use an American accent. I would use a Scottish accent. For American Student Radio, this is Stephen Johnson. I mean, I can say, like, thanks, bye, like, see you again. I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, chalo, aojo, pachimari. Um, what, were, uh, what were you supposed to do? Okay. All right. Goodbye. Thanks for talking to me. All right. Yeah. yeah. If you felt that was really stupid, we can wrap it up. Sync up with their lips. That's what I think. Language. It's a virus. So almost all of us had to learn another language at some point. What happens to us when we do? Sarah Whaley has our next piece, an interview with her Thai professor, Saria, who's found that learning a new language is really learning a new self. So at first, I saw some flakes, some white flakes. I thought that would be snow, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> so I just observed the flakes or look out of the window for some minutes, and suddenly I heard some kids around the neighborhood scream. So my first name is Surya. My last name is Siprom. But in Thai culture for us, it's more common to go by first name because last name was something I mean, is something quite new for us. In the past, we didn't have last name. Right before Thanksgiving was Surya's first time seeing snow. 
he had just finished his linguistics PhD in Thailand when he was asked to come to Indiana University as an exchange professor. I'm teaching Thai at IU. Before I came here, I taught Thai to foreign students in a university in Bangkok. Surya grew up on Phuket, an island in the south of Thailand. It is a famous tourist destination and therefore full of other languages. When I grew up there, I saw a lot of tourists, or Westerners, and a lot of English sites, French sites, German sites on the street or a restaurant or tourist area. So that might have influenced my interest in the language because I saw from my real life that learning a foreign language was very useful. At first, Surya wanted to learn every language he could. He wanted to be a translator. But as he studied Mandarin Chinese, French, Spanish, and Italian alongside English and Thai, he soon found there was more to language than just the vocabulary. To learn a new language, not just new sets of words and grammar, you will get new ways of um, seeing the world you know, through other cultures' eyes or eyeglasses, mm, because different sets of words uh, or vocabulary may reflect some um, local tradition or culture. Mm. The more foreign languages I have learned, the more I have learned about our or my own mother tongue too, because sometimes when I compare between uh, Thai and other foreign languages, I find some similarity and differences. Now instead of translating, Surya spends his time teaching others his mother tongue. It would be much better to make people um, speak a new language mm, without the help of translator or interpreter. And, and sometimes, as you may have heard the uh, phrase, loss in translation, you know, so it's better to read or listen and understand the um, original text without the translation mm, because some ideas or some feelings mm, are kept in the original language. Mm. For Surya, language is more than just a set of words or a list of grammar rules. In his mind, language has a soul. To learn a new language is to, to become a new self. Mm. So while it was snowing here, what's it like in Thailand? We are hot <laughs> because of food temperature and also our temper maybe I think so I don't know <laughs> if you like that piece you can contact Sarah at sewhaley at indiana.edu that's s-e-w-h-a-l-e-y language of course can hurt 
Catherine de la Rosa brings us a travel narrative about a time that language was used as a weapon. It all happened on a dusty road to church in Parma, Italy. The summer before I started high school, I went to Europe with my mom and siblings for three weeks. We spent most of this time in Italy. When my mother came to New York from the Philippines in the 90s, one of her first friends in America was a slightly older Filipino woman named Sylvia. Though we're from Kentucky, the two of them remained friends through the years. So when my mom decided we had to see the Vatican, Sylvia came along. Over 80% of people in the Philippines are Catholic. We're one of the most Catholic countries in the world after Brazil and Mexico. Italy has the biggest Filipino population in Europe and is 91% Catholic. While my mother and Sylvia came to America, Sylvia had a brother who left the Philippines for Italy. He had at least six children scattered across the country. For most people, three weeks in Europe is super expensive. We saved money by staying with Sylvia's nieces and nephews. These were strangers hosting Americans they'd never met before because their aunt asked them to. I was not excited for this trip. I was 14, the worst age of all, and I don't speak Tagalog, the language spoken by most Filipinos. Other than English, I knew a few Tagalog phrases and the titles of operas. We would be staying with people we didn't know who spoke Italian, Tagalog, and smatterings of English. I was reliant on them, yet we couldn't carry a conversation. The first person we stayed with was one of Sylvia's nieces, who lived just outside of Parma a city in northern Italy famous for prosciutto and parmesan cheese. It was around five when we piled into the niece's stick shift to go to Parma. Sylvia took shotgun while my mom, brother, sister, and I piled into the back. It was hot. A long, dusty road led into Parma. All the windows were open and the radio played American music. The women spoke Tagalog some gossip about mutual friends they'd somehow made while on different continents. I didn't know what they were saying, but they used that universal tone of conspiracy you hear in any group of middle-aged women. Then the conversation died. It started with the driver, Sylvia's niece. She rolled the window shut, turned down the radio, stopped talking. Sylvia was the last to catch on. I turned to see what had caused their silence and looked out the windshield. Down the dirt road, around eight black girls stood on either side. They looked young, some of them young as I was, maybe even younger. They wore sequin tube tops and tight miniskirts, all in loud, clashing colors. They stood car lengths apart, flanking the road like guards at a procession. Against the green of trees in the heat of June, they were spectacles. I was 14. I knew what prostitution was. I'd seen Pretty Woman. From my Catholic education, I knew Mary Magdalene, disciple of Jesus, was a prostitute. That was the extent of my prostitution knowledge. The car in front of us honked, a bright chirp like a gunshot, and stopped in front of one of the taller girls, an older one. A fat, hairy, white arm dangled out the driver's window. The girl climbed in, and he drove away. I understood what I'd just seen, numbly. The shock felt distant, like something far away had broke. The car rolled closer and closer. We passed them steadily, 
One, two, three, four girls never looked up at us from the ground. We were near the end of this line. Only one girl left when Sylvia's niece honked. The car slowed and moved to pull over. The girl walked toward us on the passenger side, waiting for us to stop when the driver sped up again. All the women laughed, including my mother. Thousands of women and girls are trafficked into Italy for sex work every year. A majority of these sex slaves come from Nigeria, kidnapped or lured into Italy. Prostitutes are a common sight on Italian streets, enough to become a point of national debate. I didn't know any of this at the time. I imagine those girls are Nigerian or stolen from somewhere else in Africa. I know they're young, and I imagine they're scared and trying their best to get by. These girls didn't know Italian, they didn't know English, and they especially didn't know the Tagalog that taunted them from the confines of that passing car. All they knew was what a honk meant. It was a command, and then they reanimated like a switch had been flipped. I went to the Vatican a week later and wondered if those girls knew the mass in Ibo, like my mother knew it in Tagalog. I wondered if they worked the streets in Rome, outside St. Peter's Basilica. I heard the rosary in Italian and wondered if those girls realized that with nearly 80 churches in Parma, their customers were Catholic. As a freshman in college, free to ignore the Sabbath, I think of them. I don't pray in English or recite the Tagalog I knew when I was younger. I think of how, in Parma, a man can go to church and pick up a sex slave on the way home. How girls stolen from different countries with different languages on their tongues stand in lines, silent and still, responding only to honks. Music provided by Pawnington Bear under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial International License. Language is a connector. Words keep us grounded after the people who inspire them all left. Carter Barrett brings a piece about slam poetry, one of the most active art scenes in Bloomington, a community founded on words. The sacrificial poet is none other than my wonderful co-host, Mr. Harlan Kelly. Give it up for Harlan. I often get very emotional about my genes. Being a mildly gender-confused Catholic schoolboy... The idea of this story is how I use art to deal with the things we're faced with in life. This is Carter Barrett, and I interviewed Harlan Kelly in the bathroom of my um, oh, house because it's the quietest room. Harlan studied English and Communications at Indiana University. He graduated about two years ago. While Harlan was still in school, he helped start the slam poetry scene with a couple of his friends. Wearing the only pair of jeans that I owned, I attempted an Olympic-level gymnastics routine to land on my feet. But, as you can probably tell, I am not an Olympic gymnast. And the skin that peeled from my legs wasn't as painful as the sight of the two tiny mouths I had given birth to on my kneecaps. Because I knew that those little holes would slowly start gnawing away at my jeans. 
And no matter how much I believe that everything is inherently meaningless and all values are just made up by humans, and we all pretend that this matters even us humans are just one tiny little floating seed blown up a dandelion in the whole existence of the universe, no matter how much I believe that, I can't deny my genes are going to melt into a scrap of cloth. Harlan wrote the first version of the Jeans poem while he was still in college, only about six months before he graduated. The Jeans poem originated from a literal ripping of jeans in a conversation with Harlan's friend Michael. I said the word, the phrase, I'm so emotional about my jeans right now. And he, he laughed at that and kind of teased me about it. And we, but we were in, in talking about it. He ended up being like, you should write a slam poem about this. Like this is, this is kind of interesting and funny, but also you have like a deeper meaning behind it. About a year after Harlan graduated, he was hired as a radio promoter by a record label in Bloomington. He really likes his job, but sometimes... sometimes I'll just be like, what am I doing? Is this my passion? I don't know. Why am I still in Bloomington? Is it just like the easy step for me? And that's why I did it. And when some of Harlan's friends started to move away, Bloomington wasn't quite the same anymore. It's definitely terrifying, especially now that I've seen it happen so much since like people who I thought I would never, ever not talk to. I just don't talk to anymore. I had a large friend group in college of just like a bunch of people that I knew. And so many of them have left. And like people that I was really, really close to, I don't talk to anymore at all. And I don't go see. Um, And that's, you know, our lives are just in different points now. And it's, it does not feel good. When was the moment you realized most of your friends had moved away? I don't know if it's a moment. I think that's the thing. Like, I think that's the... The scariest part about it is that there isn't a moment. There isn't a time when you say, okay, this is it. All my friends are leaving right now. It's just one by one. People just leave town. My jeans are going to melt into a scrap of cloth. I can't deny that my last four pairs of jeans turned into rags when the crotch cracked open. I can't deny that I have six pairs of jeans in the back of my closet that are more whole than jean, and I keep telling myself, ah, I'll get my sister to pass them up eventually. I can't deny that everything unravels eventually, and I can't deny I'm not just talking about my f-ing jeans. I graduated college from this town a long time ago, and most of my friends have already left. I'm not able to see them when I go out on the weekends. I'm not able to touch their faces and make sure there are no tears. I'm not able to check to make sure they aren't growing too fast and splitting open at the seams. So I often get very emotional about my friends. The poem started out as a lighthearted ode to his friendships, but as his friendships changed, so did the poem. It went from like this hypothetical fear to a very real thing I was dealing with to now a whole new thing on the other side. But the, like the feeling I had when I was doing it or when I walked off stage changed from before, during, and after. Uh, before, it was kind of like, you know, it was like a smiling thing. Like, we'd come on, I'd do it, and then afterwards, we'd be like, oh, you know, we'd like Michael and I would hug. Her. Um, it was just a, an ode to what we have now. And then kind of like toward the end of my senior year and – Around then, it was more of an ode to what has already happened and how it connects to what we have now. Especially when I see any holes spreading between us. I just want to yell into the rip, damn it, I'm just glad that I know you. Because if the earth was the size of Texas, you and I wouldn't be the size of a t-shirt. And yet, 
and all the billions of piles of discarded clothes and broken toys to find people, to find a friend who fits me like my jeans do. Everything's going to change. Everything's going to fall apart. But like every once in a while, you get that moment when you're hanging out in New York on a Saturday night and drinking beer and talking about life and hugging each other. And that's exactly what that poem is talking about. It's just like getting to see someone every once in a while and being very thankful for that. Harlan has two visions of the future. One, where he moves to New York and occasionally does stand-up while working in the music industry. Another, where he buys a house in Bloomington, still works his job, and continues holding slams for the community. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Oh, man. (laughs) I wish I knew. That's like the big, that's another, that's a big question. I could give you the fantasy answer, and I could give you the the reality answer and the reality answer is I have no idea and I really wish I knew I feel like I'm just gonna look up and it's gonna be 10 years later and I'm gonna be like oh I didn't decide ever growing up is a part of life that everyone reaches whether or not anyone is ever ready for it so do you feel like the progression of the poem is like reflects a progression of having to grow up uh yeah yeah definitely um I kind of unintentionally wrote it about growing up you know I didn't know that it would affect me in this way when I originally wrote it um but that's kind of the thing it's like kind of ended up emulating how I feel about people um and like what I value you know I think it's the fact that I still do the poem and the fact that I still care about the poem is a sign of the things I value and I like friendship is a very very important thing to me. For one, so for one breath in this marathon, for one spark in this dark room, for one second right before everyone kisses on New Year's Eve, for one speck of dust floating in the sunshine on a hot Midwestern day, you and I are here, sitting across from each other, looking damn good in our jeans. In Bloomington, this is Carter Barrett. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice or on Facebook at American Student Radio or on our website, americanstudentradio.org. Nothing gets people fighting quite like pronunciation. So in honor of this week's episode on language, we asked our producers to pronounce some words with varying results. Milk. 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 Okay, I never know what that one. Pen. 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 Pillow. 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 Spinach. 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 Uh, root. Route. Root. Route. I feel like no one says that, but it just sounds right to me. It sounds like classier. Caramel. 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 Cran. Cram. Crayon. Crayon. A hoof? A hoof? Definitely a hoof. It's definitely a hoof. <laughs> hoof? 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 I understand that, but it sounds like woof. <laughs> and it's just like, that's not what I'm trying to say right now. A hoof and a roof and a roof and a hoof. Right before I said all of them, I was thinking in my head, oh my gosh, somebody who's going to say it this way is going to disagree with me. So we've been talking about different languages, but each language is a world in itself with nuances in accent, place, and tone. It's also a huge act. Nancy Lipschultz has worked for years in theater with a specialty in dialects. Today, our producer Morgan Burris talks to Nancy about her experiences teaching, her favorite accents, and her celebration of the way the same language changes depending on where you speak it.
Hi, I'm Nancy Lipschultz. I'm an associate professor of theater, Department of Theater, Drama, and Contemporary Dance now. Yeah. And you're really great at dialects and doing different voices from different parts of the world. Uh, yeah, that's what I teach here. I teach language, uh, accents, dialects, text, and all that, all things uh, speaking for actors. So, yeah, uh-huh. I, I hope I'm good at it. I think I have a good ear, and I've done a lot of it in my professional career as well. So, yes. Is that how you learned it, just having, like, a really good ear for hearing, or did you take, like, classes learning each one? Um, for me, when I was um, an actor back in the old days, olden days, um, you had to learn it by ear. You had to be able to pick it up by ear. Uh, now, um, there's a great way to learn it, David Allen Stern's method, which I have used if I don't know a dialect and I want to learn it. I first listen to it, but then I look at the um, scientific side of it. So he uses things that are very easy to grab onto for actors like point of resonance, which means where does it sit in your mouth according to, you know, how does your tongue hit your teeth? Do, does it stay on your tongue, stay on your palate? Where is the vocal focus? What are the pitch changes? What are the consonant changes? What are the vowel changes? What's the lilt? Is it flat? Um, I think you also look at sort of the um, where the dialect came from, uh, who's doing it, what they look like when they're doing it. It's great to look at a face, uh, a face that's doing it. Paul Meyer from the University of Kansas has an international dialect English archive where he has native speakers from all over the world speaking English in their dialect or accent as well. So those are some starting points. And um, I also coach dialects and accents professionally, like up at IRT, Indiana Repertory Theater, and other places too. So yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's so much to look at uh, for, for accents, for each accent. Um, could you tell me a little bit about like a really common accent, like a British accent? Like what, where does it sit in your mouth and what's the lilt or et cetera? Sure, sure. The changes in British accent, um, the accent's point of resonance is behind the lips um, in front of the teeth, both sets of teeth for a British RP, which means received pronunciation, which is also known as a standard British accent. There is a music to it. Um, there's a bend or um, a diphthong sound in some of the vowels. Uh, the consonants remain the same as um, standard American. They're just slightly more tense. Um, and it goes forward rather than down in America. We go down at the end of sentences. They go forward. Um, you know, so the standard you know, British sound becomes very important in certain plays. And an accent is like a costume. It brings you into the world of the play. So the less generic and more character-driven that is with the text, the better it is. So, you know, if, you, if you're in a restoration comedy, you know, you're doing this very, you know, poshy British sound, uh, you know, and if you're in a more contemporary sort of Tom Stoppard play, you're doing an RP that's more street, urban-sounding London sort of sound. So, yeah, that's it. Um, what's your favorite accent to do? Oh, I like I, I like um, I like British. I've done a lot of that, and I'm called on to coach that a lot still. Uh, both standard British and Cockney, of course. Uh, that's always fun. 
If you're in Christmas Carol, you have to do a lot of Cockney or working class. Um, I also like doing Russian because I think uh, villains in either film or television now are all Russian. So, you know, you get the Russian sound. You know, it's very flat, a very nasty sound, you know. I like that quite a bit. Uh, I think it's, I mean, I think it's really useful. Um, that sort of harsh New York sound is good, too. That's around a lot still in a lot of plays, and it's on television a lot, too. Um, it's hard. I like them all. I mean, it's fun. You know, you know, I like them all. And, you know, Southern is fun, and, you know, Mid-Southern is fun, like Texas like George Bush, that's fun. So they're all good. They're all fun. Um, does Indiana, like we're all here and a lot of us are from here. Do we have a specific accent that we don't like know about or that we don't think about? Yeah, you have sort of a, you you know, you wash your clothes and you're from Indiana, you know, and you have a real twang to you. Uh, I think the further south you get towards Kentucky, the more twang it gets, Evansville and so on. That's the real warsh. I'm going to warsh it. But, yeah, there is a, there is sort of a twang to it. There's an IE substitution, which is southern, that get, send, temple, that thing. That's that's also here as well. But that's all over the Midwest, too. So, yeah, Indiana, of course. <laughs> and I think I think that's my last question. Um, like, you have coached uh, acting and stuff, or acting and dialects for a very long time. What's been your favorite moment of that, or have you learned anything specifically from, like, coaching accents and that kind of deal? I have. I've learned that um, the best thing is to err on the side of clarity for the audience's sake. Um, also, if you have sort of a generic, you know, thing going on, you get sort of the bad high school production of the importance of being earnest, which is not what you're looking for, where everybody's trying to just do the accent rather than sort of um, connecting it to character and communication. I think that's really, really important. Um, and that's something I've, I've learned as I've, I've gone along. And also other people are better at hearing than others. So you have to keep going at it until you find the way in with everybody. And then you sort of get an ensemble sound, and that becomes very important when coaching a play so that everybody's in the same world. So that's it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How do you keep a language alive through generations? It's a part of one's culture, but it can get lost in the gap between parents and kids. Abby Gibson talks, talks with her friend, a polyglot dealing with just this question. So I sat down with my friend Mary Moselle. Hello, my name is Mary Moselle. To discuss what it was like for her growing up in a multilingual household. Hello, ich heiße Mary Moselle. Merhaba, bin Mariam And full disclosure, we've been friends for a few years. We went to high school Hi. together, and you hello. can kind of tell on the tape. <laughs> hello, 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 hello. Is this good? Okay, should I hold it? So I grew up speaking okay. German, Turkish, and English okay. at home. My mom is German and Turkish. Um, so basically from the moment I was born, my dad would speak English to me and my mom would speak German and Turkish. I don't think I like realized they were different languages for a while, sort of. But I remember like when I started going to preschool, I started speaking English more at home. And in preschool, though, I would like speak Turkish, which would confuse everyone. <laughs> But after a while, when I got home, I continued to speak English. And my mom, I think, got really worried. So 
she just stopped talking to me. Like, if I spoke English to her for, you know, for whatever reason, you know, she she just wouldn't respond. There was maybe a week or so where she just wouldn't speak to me until I realized that I had to speak German or Turkish to communicate with her. So it was harsh, but maybe it was necessary. And so why do you think it was so important for your mom to have you grow up speaking Turkish and German? I think my mom's really close with her family, and she still has very strong ties to Germany, and especially Turkey, I think. Um, And she's also a linguist, so it would be kind of horrible if her own daughter didn't speak, you know, the languages that she teaches um, and studies. I think when my father married my mother, my mom's dad, so my grandfather, made them promise that I would grow up speaking at least one other language, like either German or Turkish, so that we could talk, you know. I can't imagine not being able to speak to them in, you know, German or understand them when they speak Turkish, because I mostly speak German with them. I wouldn't really know them as well if I was experiencing them in a language that is not native to them, kind of. So being in college, do you miss speaking and hearing German often? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I I do miss speaking German. I I do miss German more than Turkish. I think I've always kind of suppressed my Turkish side out of spite. (laughs) Not spite, but just like I feel really left out in Turkey, kind of. Why? Because I'm so white. (laughs) (laughs) No, because, you know, no one ever, I just, I never blended in. And I can blend in really easily in Germany. And I just kind of, I don't know, I I think I resent it a little that I, I can't in Turkey. And, yeah, I just never really, I don't know, I felt kind of excluded, I think, always. So... Yeah, but I, I do really miss German. Do you think that if you have any children, will you teach them um, German or Turkish at home like your mother did for you? Um, I've actually thought about this a lot. <laughs> um, probably not. I just, I don't think I am German enough or Turkish enough to pass that on. And I don't want to pass on some kind of like impure form of the language. I'd rather they learn it in a formal setting. Like, what do you mean by impure? It's sort of like, you know, the <laughs> so the Amish, <laughs> the Amish came from southern Germany. Amish ancestors, the whatever, the big, I, I don't know how to describe them, but the big Amish, the big Amish. <laughs> they came over to the U.S., they settled down, and they already had this kind of strange German. It was, I mean, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to sound... Amish horrible but um northern german is considered the more like upper class german and they spoke southern german so they came over here they spoke that with their kids and it's such an insular you know it's it's just they keep speaking that but it's sort of degraded over the generations so now they speak this bizarre sort of weird german it's really hard to understand Sometimes my mom and I run into Amish, weird, but like on trains or at the zoo, it's happened. It's happened more than once, and we speak German to them. I don't know. 
how, but like we approached. I don't know. <laughs> I think my mom. I, I don't know. I think my mom had approached them or something. She's just, like, she's just like looking for someone to speak German with, like in the ether. <laughs> like she'll find them. She'll go to them. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, and their German is just kind of mangled and sad, <laughs> and I wouldn't want my child to speak a mangled and sad version of the German language. That's all. <laughs> okay, so you don't want your kid to be, like, speaking Amish German or Miriam version of Amish German, whatever that would be. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so you're now you're taking Swahili, which is not German, and it's not Turkish, and it's not French, which you took, and it's not Spanish, which you learned as a child. It's not even Arabic, which you learned in high school together. We took Arabic lessons in high school together, but it's not Arabic. So, like, why are you, what is this with this, like, collection of languages that you've kind of curated okay well i do like learning languages and i do like learning very different languages but i would say the thing that most attracted me to air or to swahili was that my mom does not speak it and she never will and she speaks so many languages that i just wanted one language for myself you know and that's that's why that's partially why I'm learning Swahili and I'm also interested in East Africa but you know that too I don't want to say that but but that's a big part of it yes my name is Abby Gibson and this is American Student Radio so you've heard our co-executive producer, Matt Bloom, hunt down lobsters and face-sized burgers. This week, he talks to Linda, a medium who lives on the south side of Indianapolis. For this Matt Tries Things, Matt tries to talk to the dead. I don't really know how to explain what you're about to hear, but judge for yourself. This is the tape of me visiting a medium with my friend Joe. So about what my mom said when because i was like we're gonna see a medium and i don't like i don't know if she's even ever like gone to the psychic before and she was like you have to be she's like i know you're probably both just like really skeptical but she's like the only way it's gonna work and i don't even know what she meant by like work like i don't know if she actually believes it or she just like thinks it's a good like therapeutic experience like she's like we have to like you and i have to be open you have to be open to reaching the other side like that's the only way you're gonna find anything i'm 100 percent open okay well good this is matt tries things a new podcast about well me matt trying new things this week matt tries to talk to the dead precursor to this, I'm not a spiritual person at Check. all. Trying to reach the other side is something I've never done Ooh, hello, or really hello. even thought about trying until this episode. I was promised by Linda that she could help us reach the other side to communicate with the dead. My friend Joe and I were hugely skeptical about this, so on our way to Indianapolis to talk to her, we were doing the obvious thing. We were making fun of the whole thing. Like, I will pretend that I'm your medium right now, and I will say, Joe, I know you have someone who has crossed over to the other side. Yeah, and I'll be like, yeah, I do. Okay, I'm, I'm feeling a male figure, male figure in the room. I could, yeah, I could be, uh, it could be my grandpa. 
and your grandpa passed away, correct? Yes. Okay. So now, see, look, see what I did? Now I know you have your grandpa passed away. Yeah. All right. So his name, I think his name started with like a consonant. <laughs> it did. It started with a consonant. It did. It, his name started with, that's what we used to always say. My grandpa, <laughs> his name started with a consonant. My grandmother and my grandfather on my mom's side died two years ago. They're both the only close family members that I'd potentially be reaching. For a session with Linda, I paid 40 bucks in cash for a 30-minute reading. Far cheaper than any of the other places Joe and I called. But it was enough money to where I felt invested. I wanted something out of this. I feel... I wonder if the... Um, I wonder if the time is super strict like at 30 she'll just stop talking she'll be like okay done even if she's in the middle of some really interesting and then she's done it so many times that she has kind of like a process and it just times out pretty well to like 30 minutes you know what i mean she starts winding down at 20 you know 26 she's like okay any last words yeah. <laughs> we pull off the interstate on the south side of indianapolis we pass a few gas stations a wendy's and then pull behind an olive garden there, we stake out in an abandoned parking lot. It's in front of a strip mall with about two or three out-of-business Chinese and Vietnamese restaurants. In the middle, we see the wait, sign there is a, there, for the wait, Pyramid of it. Enlightenment. There's the China... South Franklin Road, then turn left. There's the China Buffet. There's the China Buffet. At this point, it's pretty office. hard for me to describe exactly what the Pyramid of Enlightenment is. It's not just a place where people come to get their palms read. It's this big event space where you can have parties and virtually any kind of psychic reading you want. There's little rooms in the back, fake plants around the place. Well, here's a list that was on their window. Tell me what you see. I see a sign with a rainbow pyramid. It says Pyramid of Enlightenment. And there's an open sign, so it is open. And it has a bunch of services that it says listed. Psychic readings, services, astrology, clairvoyance, classes, ghost hunting, meditations, numerology, palmistry, past life regressions, Reiki, psychic reading, tarot, red, or, um, weddings. They've, they have everything. And that's when we see the car pull up. Inside are three people, a man and two women. They pull up to the storefront of the Pyramid of Enlightenment. One of the women gets out of the car. That has to be Linda. She's in a big white fur coat. <laughs> There's no way that isn't. Is she going, oh my God. Joe, that has to be her. She hands her bag to an assistant and walks towards the front door. There's an open sign hanging in the window. That's Linda for sure. There, a woman just walked in in a like, huge white fur coat. I'm excited. Walking into the Pyramid of Enlightenment is like accidentally walking into somebody's house you don't know. There was no one at the front door to greet us. There's tables and shelves lining the whole room with books and memorabilia on them. The most overwhelming thing about this place is the hundreds, literally hundreds of dishes of tiny multicolored rocks, all labeled with a weirdly specific this power. Is light. It's purple. I know this is blacksmith. Discover your true purpose. Joe runs to go to the bathroom, and I help myself around the shop. Just then, a woman opens the door behind me. It's the same woman who was wearing the big white fur coat. I'm Matt. I'm Linda. Nice to meet you. Nice yeah. to meet you, too. My friend Joe's in the bathroom right now. Is he coming in with you? Is that okay? It will mix you up, but it's okay. But it will mix up your reading a bit. Ooh. I already had two sitting in it earlier, and it will kind of like intertwine and crisscross. Intertwine and crisscross? 
Of course, selfishly, I wanted to talk to my dead relatives more than Joe's, but it was fine. Joe comes back from the bathroom, and we decide what to do. Okay. Hmm. It's entirely up to you. I mean, okay. it may not go to you at all. I mean, it, I don't know. Yeah. Well, we both go in there then. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's both go in. You, you don't care okay. if it goes to him? No. Okay. I don't care. That's entirely up to you. Yeah, that's up to me. I got it. He, he may get uh, 95% of it. He may that's, get 50 50. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. That's you okay. may get most of yours. Um, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead and come in. Oh, okay. Cool. We walk into Linda's reading room and sit down on two office chairs that are pulled up to a table with a leopard print tablecloth covering it. The lights are dim, and at this point, I'm not sure how Linda feels about the mic being close to her face, so I'm not holding it too close, and I'll explain what she's about to say if you can't hear it. She starts by telling us that she doesn't use cards. She just whips out the information as it comes to her. But Linda, also proudly, as she tells us, likes to cuss up a storm. So you might hear a awesome. couple bleeps coming up. I do cuss up a storm, so I hope you don't mind. I love that. Does that mean I can? You bet. I'm good. Yes. You okay. can say whatever in front of me. I am super, super, super laid back with this, okay? We sit back in our chairs, and Linda gives us her spiel. So, and and you, you guys are young, so a lot of stuff might come out. That makes no sense to you today, which is good to have a recording for that reason. Okay. And uh, because it may make sense in a year or two, I hear it all the time. She pulls out two pieces of notebook paper from a composition notebook. One for me and one for Joe. And she explains that she'll write down the names and things that come to her during the reading. But, but oh, and names are here, meaning alive, or there. Because people from the other side can come through in here, too. Joe and I looked at each other. At this point, we knew that we'd come to the right place. There is a male that passed that's in here, okay? Have any, either one of you lost either a grandfather? Okay. Mm, yeah. According to PsychicReviewOnline.com, mediums are psychics who possess the special ability to talk to and summon the souls of the departed. They are often known as channels and spirit guides, mainly because they assist people in communicating with their dead loved ones and serve as channels in relaying each message. They are different types of mediums today, and they can serve in helping people reach out to the departed. We had no idea what Linda was. We sort of touch on the fact that there's a male presence in the room with us, but that's really the extent of it thus far. Meanwhile, Linda keeps going on about how she'll touch on our careers, our love lives, travel experiences, and that's when the light flickers. Trips and stuff, which is so cool. Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right, I don't want to wig you out. I call that, there's nothing wrong with the bulb. Uh, okay, I didn't yeah. press a button. My one guy went. <laughs> yeah. So I call thing. that, I have a little thing, I call that my confirmation flash. When I said, I think it flashed when I said you would be well-traveled. You do show a lot of travel in your future. Isn't that something you really want to do? Oh, yeah, oh for God. sure. Girl, you know. Lucky you. You're, you're very, very lucky. <laughs> you know. You're, you're going to be a freaking lucky man. At this point during the reading, there aren't a whole lot of definitive answers or information from Linda. There's a lot of chit-chat, which is fine. Linda does not stop talking at all. I'm almost afraid to speak up in fear of interrupting her and throwing her off. We kind of move away from the subject of the male presence that maybe or may not be my grandfather, and get into my love life, which, of course, starts to get complicated. I see you ending up with somebody that's fairly lean, thinner, uh -huh. uh, the longer-looking hair. She's got actually really pretty light eyes, mm -hmm. okay? At, what, did I describe somebody you know? Well, I'm just thinking, 
So, okay, so to, just to be upfront, I'm gay. Okay, that's okay. And I can't, but I'm straight. I, yeah. Okay, I'm picking up on you then. So, so yeah, I'm picking up on your light gal. I'm picking up on your light haired gal. Okay, let me see what guys you've got on here. First name, <laughs> wait a minute, hold the phone. Joe and I's session lasts for a total of 30 minutes. During it, she tells us the future of our relationship statuses, our careers, our travels. But we never quite got to talk to the dead. The closest we got was that there was this weird male presence in the room, and I had absolutely no idea what she meant by that. I never really asked because I was too worried that I'd throw off her psychic mantra or whatever. So Joe and I left and got some Wendy's and recapped the situation. Okay, I felt like at the beginning I was into it, and and then like it just got almost too like specific. If that makes sense. Yeah. With me, she like the last time, like. Did they go on my Facebook or something and, like, look at that? Okay, and so here's the thing that when she said my name was Joseph, I was like, okay, have I said my name? What, did and I then she was like, are you taking any journalism classes or anything? Okay, like, that's really specific. I, I don't know. Yeah, but you are, like, doing journalism. I'm literally holding a microphone to your face. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's real or not. And if I meet a man named Chris or write three books, which are two things Linda told me that I do in the future... I'll be happy. But I know I didn't get to talk to the dead. And if you have a way for me to do that, this is my call out for you. Email me at aaronmattbloom at gmail.com. I'll be happy to chat. For American Student Radio, I'm Matt Bloom. So thanks so much to all our producers for this week's American Student Radio here from WIUX in Bloomington. I've been your host, Stephen Johnson. Next week, tune in to hear Hannah Boone host an hour on Leaps of Faith. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-N-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 